0: The story of life usually begins at birth, but here we are going to start at the end. Well, actually, after the end. What do we mean? We want to start by looking at historical figures' legacies. How does society remember a person? And how does that memory shape our understanding of the past, and perhaps, more importantly, the present? I'm Justina. And I'm Jamie. And this is The
1: Stories We Tell, a podcast that analyzes historical figures and how the stories we have told about them shape the larger histories about the creation of nations, the identity of their citizens, and so much more. Ultimately,
0: history is a collection of interpretations made by historians. Here we will look at how those interpretations created memory, one legacy at a time. Hi, everyone. Justina here. This is our first season's final episode. Thank you so much for listening. We really, really appreciate your support. Before we get started discussing Malcolm X... I wanted to ask, if you haven't already, please subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen. This will ensure that you're notified about our second season, which will be launching in late spring 2023, and any spontaneous episodes. And speaking of bonus spontaneous content, Jamie and I are interested in any of your lingering questions about the stories we have told. Do you have any questions about the historical figures we have discussed this season or did we leave anything out? We would love to know your thoughts. You can write to us via Instagram. Our handle is at stories underscore we underscore tell underscore podcast, or please feel free to email us at pod at gmail.com. Thank you again for listening. We really, really appreciate it and happy holidays, everyone recording recording we're in, or we're recording. <laughs> recording in progress excellent okay so today we are going to talk about malcolm x okay i'm very excited about him. i knew you would so be. i know so maybe i should give a little background i have had a real fascination with malcolm x and the history around malcolm x probably oh, since high school. I was
1: wondering if you were going to let everybody know that your obsession with Malcolm X's story is really kind of what propelled you into graduate school. Even you wouldn't be, you would not be where you are today were it not for your initial kind of love. And I think you told me you annoyed everybody in college with your kind of exhaustive telling yeah. of his life story to everyone. So <laughs> all of that is accurate. I <laughs> just own it. It's fine.
0: It's fine. I was an AP U S history in high school. Sure. I, of course I was. And I did an assignment where we had to pick someone. We basically made worksheets for the rest of class because we were cramming for the AP test. And so each person picked a topic, then they made a worksheet, like a study worksheet for the rest of the class and did a small presentation about the person, place, event, whatever. For some reason, I got to choose first. I think I was going to, I had a soccer game or something, so I was missing a class. So I got to choose first. And I was so excited to choose Malcolm X. And I think it's because Something about him that I didn't know a lot about, but I wanted to know. He seemed controversial to me based on kind of the general public's associations with him. And so I did this assignment and my biggest reaction was, wait a minute, a lot of the things that they say kind of make sense. (laughs) And why did I think that he had these like controversial associations? And i think i really did kind of a soapbox presentation (laughs) in high school like hey we should all think he's really cool and you know he was saying really interesting things and we should you know kind of rethink the way we understand him and that really moved into college so when i was in college in new york i did my senior thesis Basically, all about Malcolm X. And luckily, it was such a cool experience. When I was in college and I was writing my senior thesis, I got to visit the Schomburg Museum, or library, Schomburg Library, which is the African American New York, you know, section of the New York City Library. And um, it was way up in Harlem, and I visited and I looked at documents on. microfiche like old school Mm. and all of those things made me feel like a historian or what Mm -hmm. I perceived a historian to be and it did it really was it cemented my love of the study of history and doing research and it was kind of it I was like okay this is what I'm gonna this is what I want to do and but I really was obsessed so he I'm going to talk about it but he was assassinated in New York at this uh, place called the Audubon Ballroom, which is way uptown. And on the anniversary of his assassination, I actually went uh, to the Audubon Ballroom once to kind of show a sign of respect and It was such an interesting experience. There was just a small group of people there. They had like folding chairs out there in the that building is no longer a ballroom. It's a part of, I think, the Columbia Hospital and they had these kind of folding chairs out somebody had a boom box and was playing speeches his speeches mm, very cool and there's a statue of him in there um i think there's actually a museum for him that are dedicated to him there now but it wasn't at the time and we just kind of sat there and listened to his speeches for a while and then i left and went back downtown but my uh love of history is very much wrapped. And my particularly my love of African American history is very much wrapped up in my kind of discovery of learning about Malcolm X and kind of having a a really exciting experience of learning the history of Malcolm X, which I continue to learn more, which I'm going to talk about today, which is exciting.
1: That was a very
0: long introduction. I'm sorry about that. Don't be sorry. But uh, shall we get on with it? let's get on with it okay so a couple things I want to do today so I'm going to give you a kind of an overview of his life um we're going to talk about different moments in his life but I also to prep for this episode I went on JSTOR, as we do, and I looked at some of the most recent publications, articles about Malcolm X within like the last two-ish years, Mm -hmm. Um, just to kind of see what people were talking about. There's been some books coming out about him that are kind of more larger biographies, but I wanted to see what are some of the, the ways the scholarship is moving around him and his legacy. And so I want to talk, one of the really exciting things I learned about was a lot about his mom so i'm actually going to talk quite a bit about her and then i also want to talk about the way we remember him which makes perfect sense because the stories we tell yes exactly yeah okay So that's my plan for the day. Okay. Great. So, but we're gonna start at the beginning as we do here. So he was born May 19th, 1925, in Omaha, Nebraska. His parents I still am uh, so surprised by that. The 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 Midwestern.
1: Yeah. I mean, like Detroit, there's you know cool associations with that. But you know, when I think Nebraska, I think cornfields. And I also think about it as being a very white place. And maybe that's yeah. just wrong of me to think that. But I interrupted you very early on and I apologize.
0: <laughs> you're fine. No, I think you're right. As someone who's actually new to the Midwest, who recently moved to the Midwest. <laughs> oh, that's right. You live there now. <laughs> <laughs> two two months and counting in but the not Midwest. Not Nebraska. <laughs> not Nebraska, Indiana. But I... I so, I've been thinking actually a lot about the ways the Great Migration had impacted the Midwest. I typically had thought about New York, Chicago, which I know is Midwest, but Chicago's you know kind of such a massive city it It takes on its own histories. Um but I think I'm learning a lot more that that there was larger populations of African Americans here that had migrated during the Great Migration. His associations are so tied to New York, I think. Because Mm -hmm. of his years with the Nation of Islam and him starting the temple Mm
1: -hmm.
0: in New York. But, yes, he is originally a Midwesterner. And I'm going to talk a little bit about that in terms of his mom, which is really interesting, too. So speaking of his mom, actually, I'm going to dive right into his mom now. because Do it. I'm really excited about the things that I learned. So his parents, Earl and Louise Little were Garveyites, which means they were followers of Marcus Garvey. Garvey is a person of African descent originally from Jamaica. Um, He lived for a long time in the U.S. and he started the very prominent Universal Negro Improvement Association which was a became a massive organization with hundreds of chapters so they had kind of small chapters worldwide both Malcolm's parents were major contributors to some of the Midwest chapters, which I'll talk a little bit about later. One of the things that this organization did was they had plans of actually taking people of African descent back to Africa and starting a country there. This did happen, but it wasn't as successful as they had hoped um, and also Garvey was later convicted of mail fraud but there's a lot of speculation that he was seen as a threat to the U.S. government because he was creating this organization that was gaining a lot of traction in the U.S. and it was associated to ideas around racial equality, obviously. And so some people have speculated that that wasn't a way of being able to force him to leave the country, right? Which would hinder his movement. So let's actually talk, I'm going to talk specifically about his, his mom, because I read this really fascinating article by Eric S. McDuffie, who focused specifically on Malcolm X's mother, Louise Little. But Louise Little has typically, when we remember her in a lot of the biographies of Malcolm, she is attached to her husband. Um, She is contributing to his career within the Garvey movement, but she, after he is killed, she struggles to kind of regain stability, particularly from an economic standpoint. And then she is institutionalized. And at this point, Malcolm and some of his younger siblings are put into foster homes. So that's really the story that we typically get. It's very limited story, particularly the sections about her being institutionalized, and then that just ending the story there. And admittedly, that's really much of what I knew about her before I read this article. So I'm gonna give a quite a bit more background on her right now, just because it is so much more interesting, fascinating, nuanced than that really simple article. So let's talk about her. Okay, so Louise Little was not born Louise Little, but she was born in Granada, uh, which is an island in the Caribbean. She was actually a product of rape, which is, something that we do learn about in the autobiography of malcolm x um because he talks about and i sh- i when i say he the autobiography is technically written by alex haley who also wrote roots right it was based on interviews but a lot of people say that he's taken a lot of the narrative and run with it himself so it's an interesting text for that reason but in that text Malcolm does discuss the fact that his mother was very light-skinned and that his father was very dark-skinned. Malcolm was also very light-skinned, right? And his mother was a bit resentful about that sometimes. And I think this is very much related to the fact that she is the product of her mother being raped by a white man. So her father, who was a loiterer from Scotland, raped her mother when she was just 11 years old. Um, he actually fled the country after um, the sexual assault. So he... And Wait, he was, now, dude, what? He fled the country after the assault. I know, but assault. before
1: that, what? How old was she?
0: 11. She was 11 years old. It's horrific. And apparently he had this kind of history of sexual assault. Did you say and, he was a lawyer? No, a loiterer. So he... I couldn't actually find an occupation for him. But A loiterer? Is that what you're saying? He's just, like, living in the country. I couldn't find an occupation for him. I don't know how he got there from Scotland. So there's not much information. Am I not saying that? So he loitered, meaning that he just hung out. Yes. That is all I could find. Well, I mean, obviously he's a criminal. So there is that. Yes. He... Yes. And so she doesn't have any relationship with this man other than the fact that she knows his identity. Um, so as I mentioned, she's very light skinned. In fact, some people say that she could have passed as white. That's how light skinned she is, but she felt very highly connected, particularly to her Nigerian heritage. And she was very close to her extended uh, family. In fact, her grandparents, um, so her mother's parents helped to raise her.
1: Does Louise she... have any siblings? Do you know? I don't know. I was just wondering. The reason why I asked that question is because, um, there's a, another story that I'm familiar with of actually a noble British woman who gives birth when she's, I think around 12 or something, and she never has another child. And uh-huh. the assumption is that it's just, Cause she was so young or whatever that that it was physically traumatic and so she was unable to have children again but that in and of itself is historical speculation because we we can't know for we sure so know. i was just so i was just curious and in, in this case given the fact that her mother was so young
0: anyway okay i'm sorry i don't know but that's fine she was educated at a school affiliated with the anglican church so she has this very good education which ultimately leads her to leave granada in 1917 um, and immigrate to canada so one of her uncles had already moved to canada so she's kind of following him and she stays in montreal for a while and while she's in montreal she becomes a garveyite and she meets earl little who will then become her husband they actually meet at um and as i mentioned Garvey's organization was called the Universal Negro Improvement Association Um, I'm going to call it the UNIA from now on so they meet at a UNIA meeting they marry in 1919 so about two years after she arrives in Canada and then they move shortly thereafter uh, to Philadelphia And at this point, their career is associated with being members of Garvey's organization. She becomes a naturalized citizen of the U.S. and has her first child when they get here. And then the UNIA assigns them to Omaha, Nebraska. So that's when they become Ah, Midwesterners. Yes. Okay. Interesting, right? Yeah. Was
1: Earl Little, he was a Southerner, wasn't he? Do you remember? I think he's from Georgia. But I may just be imagining that.
0: You are correct. He is from Georgia. Yes, he is a southerner. That is correct. So I think I don't know as much about his career because I read this article, which was about I know
1: you want to talk about the mother and I'm all in favor of that. I just was trying to remember. It seemed something was niggling at me and it seemed like he was from Georgia. Anyway, I don't know how he wound up in Montreal from Georgia, but he did. And they fell in love and then they moved to Philadelphia
0: and then they moved to Nebraska. And then then we see that her activism in the midwest really reveals that she's participating in a transnational linkage between what's happening around african-american communities in the midwest and the globe which i know that's like a massive argument but i think their connection to the unia which was a global organization right and was thinking about the african diaspora from a global perspective makes them think about their experiences in different ways right they're not they're thinking about their local community right they're thinking about their uh, local chapters but they're also connecting in a very transnational way, which is exciting. And I don't think typically the ways that we've talked about Louise Little kind of give that gravity. They don't kind of give us that understanding of the way she's thinking about her herself as a person of African descent on a global scale.
1: It makes sense to, I mean, when you think about it, in addition to the, the global reach of the organization, you know, the end of World War One is a period of a lot of anti-colonial activism, you know, and so people in various different communities around the world are finding common cause in their oppression. So it's kind of part of, I, I can see it as being part of global movements that are really happening ev-
0: everywhere. Yes, I agree. And Duffy uses one specific source to kind of shine a light on this in a in an interesting way so in 1926 the negro world which was um the unia's official paper published a 65-word report about the organization's activities in omaha nebraska and this report was written by louise little so she had this short report about her chapter and her husband's chapter published in this paper that was really kind of had global implications right I think it frames her in such a different way than we typically see her framed especially because the story so much is about the fact that her about her demise really after her husband's death. And so we don't give a lot of credit to the activism that she was participating in alongside her husband. And that activism wasn't just in the U.S., right? Thinking about it much larger, right? She is not from the U.S. She lives, she lived in Canada and now she's in the Midwest, um, which would also give her a very unique perspective. Yeah. And I think some of that you'll Probably speak to this or you may
1: speak to this, but I mean, some of it I think is because of for such a long time, the focus on women was always in connection with the more of the domestic sphere. And so just kind of a general unwillingness. I mean, and not even, I mean, let's be generous and not even say an unwillingness, but just a disinterest, you know, mm-hmm. to kind of understand the lives of women in a way that didn't factor in their husbands and children.
0: Yeah, so people associated with the UNIA often were the targets of violence. And this is also true for the little family. So I wanted to talk about a couple incidents. The KKK threatened their home in the Midwest by riding up to their home and demanding to see the, her husband, Earl. And at the time she was pregnant. And so she famously confronts the Klansmen, telling them her husband's out of town. Um, and this is kind of a famous scene because she, apparently she was quite visibly pregnant. Um, and it showed her toughness, right? Because the point of the KKK was to put people in fear of their lives, right? And so, and she would have been very aware of this. This is another thing I've been thinking about with the Midwest their roots, the KKK roots are deep in the Midwest, right? Yeah. You're, you're currently residing where they had the largest
1: population of, of members.
0: It is true. I
1: I had this conversation in a class we've been talking, uh, we were talking about segregation just yesterday, in fact, (laughs) and I was talking to students about the one drop statutes that went on the books in states in the 1910s and 1920s. And I placed a lot of emphasis on the states that weren't in the South. Yeah. Because I think we tend to think about all of these these problems as Southern problems. And that's, that's not at all true. But I've I've done it again. I've interrupted you. And so she, no. very pregnant,
0: goes out and tells these men to go away. Yes. So she famously kind of confronts the Klansmen, right? Which show I think this, this incident's also going to foreshadow the very sad situation we're going to see with Earl later. During Malcolm's young years they're moving around quite a bit so they started in omaha omaha excuse me then they're in milwaukee wisconsin and then they moved to lansing michigan and in in lansing they're actually confronted by quite a bit of racism around their housing so they're in a home of which the land company that owned the subdivision took earl little to court in 1929 The company argued that because the land contracted stated only Caucasians uh, could live there, Earl had breached this contract, and so he couldn't stay in the home. The court ruled that Earl Little could own property in the subdivision, but he could not have a home there. Interesting kind of like. So you can, yeah, you can own it, but you just can't live in it. Yes, exactly. So because of this, and this is actually something I was talking about in class recently, the ways that kind of home ownership is really been associated with ways that segregation exists in states that don't have Jim Crow laws, right? That property laws and HOAs and all of these things were really used to create highly segregated um, spaces and cities and then I mean the creation of suburbs essentially you know didn't even well, allow I mean
1: this is a this is a good case in point I don't not aware that Michigan had a one drop policy and so here they're using property covenants and things to segregate communities
0: exactly so therefore he and his family had to vacate the home um, before the eviction took place though the littles house was actually burnt down I would argue an act of violence, right? Or at least well, a terrorism, terror violence. like you said yes. before, terrorism. I mean, and of violent,
1: which terrorism is. So there you go. Yes.
0: The state journal reported that the police felt that Earl Little, did they accuse him of doing it himself out of no, spot? No, I am I read that wrong. I'm sorry. So the state journal reported that the police helped. Oh, no, they did do this. <laughs> They did argue that he potentially was the arson that he, maybe for like insurance reasons, I'm not sure, but they later dropped those charges. They actually moved to East Lansing where they built another home. And in 1931, when Malcolm was just six, so this is leading up to kind of the major form of violence in Malcolm's young years, right? So when Malcolm is six, his father is murdered. The police considered his death Actually, a streetcar incident because he was run over by a streetcar. But many believe that he was actually murdered by the Black Legion, which is another racist terrorist group similar to the KKK. This is a obviously a significant moment in Malcolm's life and Louise's life. She actually has quite a few children at this point, and this wasn't covered in the book, but or in the article I read. But the the history of welfare was. Also quite racist, right? The, or, you know, original people who were actively able to get welfare monetary benefits through welfare systems were all white. So there wasn't kind of a support system built in for her during this time period. When this happens, she is trying really hard to keep the family in a stable place. But as I mentioned, she has seven children. I don't think I did mention that actually. I said, no, you one. didn't. You said quite she a has few. Seven that children. Is, that is quite yeah. a few that's a lot of children she also began another relationship during this time period and has an eighth child but the father leaves her and about seven years after Earl is murdered white social workers begin to investigate the little family so they're coming into now they're coming into the home and kind of surveilling it Using racist and sexist justifications, including her illegitimate child, right, this child with this man that left her, and citing hostility towards social workers, the state categorizes her as insane, and they sent her to the Kalamazoo Mental Hospital on January 31st, 1939. She would stay there for nearly 25 years. couple things. I want to make it very clear that institutions, you know, known as mental institutions, were sometimes used as places to put people that society deemed unfit. I couldn't find a lot of evidence around this, but, you know, this is around the time period which we're seeing Sterilization practices happening in institutions like this, right? The Supreme Court case that makes state sanctioned sterilizations constitutional or deems them constitutional is based on an institution that is sterilizing people in Virginia, which leads many states to then implement sterilization policies and practices. And so this is a way, this is a form of state sanctioned violence against Louise Little, in a sense, right? She was struggling. Her husband was murdered. She had to support several children financially. She probably could not do that. Then she could be deemed promiscuous because she has a child out of wedlock. And it's like, all of these incidents lead her to be easily marked as unfit for society um, and insane right without a lot of like scientific backing of that right it's these kind of social situations that would lead her to this it's horrific right and I think that's a part of the story that is often not given enough time right that she is a true victim of the state institutionalizing people as someone who's been thinking about the history of eugenics a lot and you mm-hmm. know I want to make this part of that, right? These are stories that should be told together, not separately. Because I think it gives us a better understanding of her experience. Her young children. So she has several children. Some of her children are old now. Yes, eight now. Exactly. Some of her children are older, so they are not put in the foster care system. But her younger children, including Malcolm, are then split up and put into foster homes. She never again spoke about Malcolm publicly. She lives for a long time. She dies in 1991. Let me just give you a little perspective. Malcolm X dies 1965. She lives decades longer than her son. After 90, her son. 91? 91. This is the thing that, th- that really kind of boggled my mind. Because she like a hundred years old. Yes. She was born in 1897. She yeah. Was, she's, she wasn't quite a hundred, but, but she's close. Yeah. But. So she, she has this whole, that's the other thing is the story is so incomplete. I just wish we knew more. I, I'm certain, I wonder how she was impacted by the, you know, nearly 25 years of being institutionalized. I can't imagine that it was something that didn't impact her. Right. And so, I mean, it just changes your perspective on her life. I mean, she knew, for some reason, in my mind, the way the story has always just kind of ended her story in 39 when she's institutionalized. In my mind, I was like, oh, she must have died not that long after. She never knew what her son became. (laughs) You know, he became a global icon. And I mean, she lived almost to when Spike Lee's film came out. So what you're saying, though,
1: is that they never had a relationship again.
0: So there's very little information. So apparently the children, Malcolm's siblings, were kind of the reason that she got out. They they pushed the state to let her out. So I think she did. He died shortly after she was let out. So I don't know the kind of relationship that they had, but she died. She was, from what I understand, was let out before he died, but very close to his death. So the
1: other thing here, if I'm understanding it correctly, is that all of the people that were writing about Malcolm X in the latter part of the 20th century never interviewed his mother. It
0: seems to be that way. Yes. Correct. Fascinating. I know. I know. And I don't know if that's something that the family was deciding upon, if it was her decision. I don't know what her what her state of mind was after being institutionalized, sure. but she lived a very long time after being institutionalized Wow, fascinating, wow. okay, so I know In a that horrifying was a, sort of way yes, yes, I know agreed, agreed, so I know that was a very long i mean I basically just gave you an episode on Louise little so we're gonna move forward now okay Malcolm's story. so Malcolm is put into foster care system um in 39 he actually does very well in school it's famously that or it's famous that he um was voted president as a young person I think in his elementary school or something he um was well liked and got straight A's. Oh, yes, it was eighth grade that he was elected the president. But he was discouraged by teachers to pursue his goals of becoming a lawyer. And I think that's kind of a monument. The the autobiography asserts that it's a monumental moment when this teacher tells him, no, you're limited because of who you are as a black man, right? And so that, I think, makes him think differently about his education, right? Because what's the point? (laughs) Right in a sense, um, when Malcolm turns fifteen years old, he actually visits his sister Ella. Ella plays a big role in Malcolm's life in uh, Roxbury, which is a neighborhood in Boston where she was living. So he travels to visit her. Ella is a really interesting person she ultimately gains custody of malcolm and he moves to boston apparently she was a rebel in her like in her own way and i think had tremendous impact on malcolm's understanding of himself and also injustices so he during this time this is he's kind of working odd jobs he works on the railroad he works in uh in restaurants and bars shoe shines this is the time where he's becoming a quote-unquote hustler he's wearing zoot suits which is really interesting, right? He's a zoot suiter in a sense. Just quickly, zoot suits are these suits that are made of tremendous amounts of fabric, right? And they were often worn during World War II by people of color, so mostly African-American men and um, Mexican-American men in California were wearing them frequently. And they were seen as a sign of rebellion because this was a time when people were, uh, making clothing that had very little fabric, right? Because what's the word Rations. I'm thinking of? Thank Rations. you. Rations. Thank you. They were rationing, right, to be participating in the war effort, right? So by wearing these suits that had tremendous amount of fabric, it was a form of rebellion. And speaking of being rebellious at this time, in 43, Malcolm responds to a draft notice by loudly proclaiming that he wants to fight for the Japanese and kill whites. He, so he's actually trying to find a way to not be drafted. So he's considered insane saying he's classified as 4F so that he can't be drafted. And there's a really excellent article by Robin D.G. Kelly talking about um, Malcolm during this time period in his like zoot suitor era um, and arguing that Um, the ways that a lot of biographies had kind of seen this time as time of him being a hustler, that he was actually participating in activism then, right? That zoot-suiting was a form of activism and draft dodging was a form of activism. Um, so that's a really interesting kind of perspective on this time period in his life that Kelly does a beautiful job of discussing. It's a great, it's a great chapter from Race Rebels. It's actually not an article. It's a chapter from Race Rebels. Highly recommend so during this time he's also kind of between new york and boston he gets the name detroit red um, because he has a reddish tint to his hair and he's from the Midwest. <laughs> That's where that name comes from. But in forty five he actually moves back to Boston. So he forms a group that is one of his African American friends uh, named Jarvis and three white women, one of which he was dating. And I think her name was B. Oftentimes she's referred to as Sophia because the autobiography refers to her as Sophia. But they are going into houses and stealing. In 46, Malcolm tries to retrieve a stolen watch from a pawn shop and is arrested on charges of grand larceny, breaking and entering, and firearm possession. He is convicted alongside Jarvis, receiving an eight to 10 year sentence. The white women have their sentence suspended, and Malcolm's girlfriend serves seven months in prison. A lot of people have argued, and I think Malcolm was also arguing, that his sentence was longer because of his association with these white women. Was that relationship also a form of rebellion? So that's a great question. So the autobiography, he really talks a lot about like the ways that having this white woman is a way, like a part of his control and it helps his status in the community of which he's kind of hustling in. Right. And so he, I think, saw it as a form of status during this time period. In the book, I think she's also married so he's not only obviously not to him right so that's another thing that he's like has power over her husband as well so i think it's a to him this it's this form of power another thing that's recent i shouldn't say recently because this book has come out quite a while ago but manny marable's book um malcolm x the life of reinvention which i think came out around 2011 2012 no maybe 2010 somewhere around there at this time he made comments in this book that he discovered that Malcolm may have been participating in some form of sex work and sex work with white Jewish men one of the articles I read in preparation for this does a really great job of talking about not necessarily whether or not this is true but about the responses to these potential relationships or it's not even a relationship because the way that Marable talks about it was that it was a way of earning money because a lot of people say that the autobiography has really over exaggerated Malcolm's power during this time period and his that he wasn't agency no I wouldn't even say agency like that he They've kind of situated him as this really successful hustler, and he probably wasn't that that oh, that was a that was kind of for a form of storytelling to kind of help show this traumatic change when he becomes a member of the nation of Islam. And so Mirabel is arguing that he did this because he needed the money this other article that I read was not talking about whether or not he did this but that likely he was probably around you know communities that were participating and engaging in this kind of sex work but it was about the way people have responded um but a lot of people got very defensive also this author made a great point about sometimes 4f so that going back to the draft dodging sometimes 4f was used to categorize people who were deemed gay or queer Mm -hmm. that could have been a another way that malcolm was able to draft dodge right maybe he quote unquote act knew how to act gay because it was clear that when malcolm went to the draft office he did not want to be drafted right he was making an effort to dodge the draft. So he's going to employ a lot of different strategies. Perfect. Yes. And so one of those could have been quote unquote acting gay, right. To be categorized as 4F. Right. So I think it just is another layer to this incredibly nuanced life. Uh, We say this a lot, but the people that we're talking about in these episodes have had, they have such full lives. Mm Mm-hmm. I mean, it's no, I mean, if you think about it, it's no wonder,
1: really, that he, I don't know, because he he grows up in a household with parents that are are Garveyites. Both of his parents experience violence because they're activists. And so, I mean, I think that explains quite a lot about who he becomes as a man.
0: Yes. All right. To get back to where we were in Malcolm's life. He's in jail. He is in jail. Just to give you a sense of where he is in life, he's 20, 20 years old. So young, still, so very young. While Malcolm is incarcerated, he meets someone who is called Bimbi, who convinces Malcolm to study and learn and develop his mind while he is in prison. And he does this to the 10th degree. <laughs> I don't know if I'm saying that right. He just is so dedicated to studying. Um, it's famous that he like rewrote an entire dictionary during this time period, um, that he read so much. We, you know, images of Malcolm X are iconic with his uh, 50s, 60s styles classes, right? It's so mm-hmm. a part of his image famously, he needed those glasses because of the tremendous amount of reading he did in such poor lighting yeah. while in prison. Strained his eyes. Yes, exactly. Also at this time, Malcolm's siblings, four of whom had converted to Islam. So they int- he's actually introduced to the Nation of Islam and Elijah Muhammad through his siblings who have converted. And they're really pushing him to consider converting as well and I want to say very briefly because there's been a lot of really great I actually read another article about the ways that the Nation of Islam really look to uh, people in prison as a way of converting people and bringing them into the Nation of Islam so he's part of this actually pretty common narrative around people being converted while in prison so in 1952 malcolm is released and he spends one night with ella then he goes to detroit and he's living with his brother wilfred um, but he quickly joins the nation of islam and attends meetings at detroit's temple number one so this is when malcolm rejects his original last name so malcolm was born malcolm little this is when he becomes Malcolm X. So just quickly, many members of the Nation of Islam reject their born last name or surname because the history of African Americans in this country took on the last names of their slave owners, right? And so the X in Malcolm X name is supposed to, it signifies The unknown like a variable in algebra right that he cannot know his true surname because that that history was stripped from him through the history of kidnapping and bringing africans across the atlantic and to the americas right and all of that history uh was lost right signifying also a cultural genocide in that sense so he becomes malcolm x and he quickly becomes the nation of islam's greatest recruiter he is incredible at it recruiting in 1953 having tripled the membership of the tripled tripled the detroit temple in under one year malcolm is appointed assistant minister there so his Participation and his contributions to the nation of Islam are rapid and quick. And so he's actually moving up in the ranks very quickly. So in that same year, so 53, Elijah Muhammad sends Malcolm back to Boston to serve as the first minister of its temple number 11. He goes on to organize temples along the East coast, including Hartford, Philadelphia, attracting new members wherever he spoke in 54. Malcolm is appointed his highest appointment to date Chief Minister of Harlem's Temple number seven and this is where we get that that I think Association of Malcolm with New York right because he starts Temple number or actually I shouldn't say that I don't know if he starts Temple number seven but he becomes their chief minister there and he is really associated with New York during this time period okay I'm going to talk a bit about his personal life really quick. So in 56, Malcolm meets who will be his future wife, Betty Sanders. She is a member of the Harlem Temple and adopts the name Betty X. They marry two years later. And Betty and Malcolm's relationship is one that feels very much about his also his relationship with being a member of the Nation of Islam he sees her as a very appropriate wife she's a very dedicated member and so I can't really speak to like the emotions around their relationship I think it was about almost their relationship with their religion. Um, And I think one way to kind of signify this or show this, demonstrate this, is that Malcolm proposes by the phone, by phone, uh, when he's in Detroit at a gas station. So famously, their marriage proposal was very much like a conversation like, okay, I think we should be married. He's on the phone. It's not... (laughs) you know, what we think of in the Western world as like this romantic proposal. So their really relationship- It could be. It could
1: be. It could be incredibly romantic. It could be that I, I'm away from you right in Detroit and I've um, been riding in this car and I've just become so <laughs> overcome with emotion and missing you and longing for you that I have come to the conclusion that we must be wed. you're saying though that that's not what it was i don't think that's what it was
0: and i think we know this partially just because we can look to the ways that the nation of islam treated relationships and gender norms and dynamics um and malcolm was such a dedicated member like his really he one of the things i i found really incredible to learn about malcolm is that he really did what he said (laughs) he dedicated himself to this nation of islam and he did it without hesitation and without doubt and that means that his all of who he was was trying to fit the correct what what the the nation of islam deemed to be a good member, right? That's why and he, he had such a problem with Elijah Muhammad, right? Yes, yes, yes. And sh- should we kind of move on to that a little bit? So yeah. one thing I want to say quickly is that when we talk about Malcolm X is we often want to put him against Martin Luther King. And I see, I have even taught it in this way, right? We see the two, they're, they're, uh,
1: one's they're, a pacifist, one's much more aggressive and militant in their stance.
0: And I would even argue not necessarily aggressive militant, but is definitely not nonviolent, right? Is self-defense. No, but I mean,
1: I think, though, I I was saying that to really kind of overgeneralize the generalization that we have made for a long time. Because, I mean, I'm sorry if one of the most iconic pictures of a man or him sitting at a window holding a shotgun, that says militant.
0: I mean, it also says not nonviolent, but that's a lot of double negatives (laughs) that image was made famous for a reason right because they were trying to paint him in that light exactly Um, but outside of kind of that dichotomy or that binary of the Malcolm X MLK binary I think he is speaking to the civil rights needs of people in northern cities like New York so one of the ways he's doing that is He's speaking about things like police brutality so i'm just going to talk about one instance so in 57 uh, one of the the members of his uh, new york temple was beaten by police and this leads malcolm to join up with some other leaders in in harlem uh, where they demand this person get medical attention johnson hinton who was beaten um, is eventually taken by an ambulance to a nearby hospital, but members of the Nation of Islam refuse to disperse, uh, which alarms police, right? There's a lot of fear about what could happen in this very tense moment. It is really, and this is, a, I think, like a pretty serious scene from the Malcolm X film by Spike, Spike Lee, that he, I, in fact, this is going to sound like such a retro thing to say, but I... That movie's so long that I think it was two VHSs. <laughs> this is this you're is dating yourself. you're I dating know. yourself, and this is how the first VHS ended. <laughs> then you would have to switch. You remember the movies that had that? You remember, but yes, it's a moment. completely
1: different sort of movie. But one of my all time favorites is a child sound of music, two tapes.
0: Oh, yes, <laughs> I was thinking Titanic too, also two tapes. Never, never seen it. Jamie Mice. Wow. That is fine. How? I want it. How? I don't
1: want to. I didn't want to. I don't want to. <laughs> that means she will never see it. Okay.
0: But what happens in this moment is that he shows that he has tremendous power because he is—he's kind of in control of his members, but also it shows that he is using this to bring light to many of the major issues that is happening like police brutality right um and so in a sense if we look at his career as a leader of the civil rights movement we really cannot better understand some of the struggles and the oppressions that are happening in kind of big cities, big urban northern cities, right? And how those are different than what we normally think of as kind of traditional civil rights, which is typically associated with things like segregation and Jim Crow laws and voting rights laws in the South, right? That's not the whole story, right? And so I think to have a better clear view of the movement, it's an, he's an excellent person to look at what kinds of things it's, He discussing, right, he's talking about economics and and the ways that poverty is continuing to be a form of oppression. Right. And things like police brutality. Right. So I think he gives us a really good sense of what was being discussed in places outside of the South that weren't thinking about Jim Crow because they didn't have Jim Crow. Anyway,
1: I think I actually think that that's a really important point because I think I don't know. Place is important. Mm hmm and so i think that the the differences i think it's actually really instructive to think about the differences in the the various movements being very much associated with place and the types of circumstances that people found themselves in in those spaces and places so You know, as you highlighted, having to deal with, you know, Jim Crow segregation in the South being prevented from from voting, things like that, different concerns of things that people were facing in urban cities and urban spaces and even i know this is kind of fast forwarding a bit but even thinking about you know the kind of different dynamics that emerge in in oakland and places on the west coast you know and that's all because of the fact that different communities were facing different things yes there's this unification this shared experience to some degree of being oppressed and being oppressed by various different systems, political, judicial systems. But I think the, you know, the, the specific kind of character and cast of those really depended on where, where people were. And I think that's something that maybe we haven't appreciated enough when we talk about these differences in the civil rights movement i think we get so focused on some of these really big characters and some of the kind of like personality differences or differences in their rhetoric and that really doesn't even capture the differences in even some of these the same geographical spaces because i mean if you think about the, the myriad of uh, organizations that even existed in the South and the myriad of responses and strategies that they employed. You know the you know, the debate about if it's like big institutional organizations that are successful, at the NAACP, or is it the grass the different grassroots movements and things? I mean, you have all of those different grassroots movements because people are responding to their particular situation. You know in in their communities. And I think that's actually a really great and instructive way to think about why Malcolm X is different, not just from Martin Luther King, but from other civil rights activists.
0: Yeah. And I think you make a great point about the grassroots movement responding directly to that community's needs or what that community is confronting. And that also speaks to the fact that The grassroots organizing during the civil rights movement is really what makes it, I think, hugely successful because there were just so many people participating, right? So even by just focusing our attentions on the few major leaders, we don't give enough credit to the hundreds, thousands of people in their communities getting up. And going to their neighbors and saying, can I help you register to vote? Right. Those sorts of things that yeah, were I think, hugely important.
1: And I think I absolutely. And I think too, the other side of that, though, is and I think we've talked about this before, is the trouble, too, with social movements. And it's it's hard to kind of unify. And when I say trouble, <laughs> I mean the trouble to create unity on a broad yes. scale because i think at the end of the day people are responding to the individual situations that they face in their daily lives and it's very difficult given that diversity to create a really big scale social movement i mean absolutely I guess to kind of bring us back to this point like that's what that's what garvey and others were trying to do right
0: create a social movement on a really grand scale yes yes so a little while ago you mentioned his confrontation with elijah muhammad so i'm going to get to that because we i know i am including a lot of detail in this episode so are sorry (laughs) okay leading up to this confrontation with elijah muhammad is a moment that kind of allows Elijah Muhammad to take Malcolm X out of the spotlight. In 63, as we know, JFK is assassinated. And on December 1st, just a few days after that assassination, Malcolm speaks at a Nation of Islam rally in New York and in response to a question describes the foul play in the U.S., or that the U.S. has committed around the world and states that Kennedy's slaying or Kennedy's murder is a case of chickens coming home to roost. This is hugely upsetting to many Americans because he was such a revered president. And this is very shortly after his very public murder, the The country was really reeling um from this murder, right? It was of course hugely- yeah, yes, of course. And so this kind of sign of disrespect towards the former president was seen as heinous. It also gave Elijah Muhammad the ability to kind of punish Malcolm. So Malcolm's popularity within the movement had grown so tremendously that he almost was more associated with the Nation of Islam than Elijah Muhammad, which I think in some senses was seen as kind of a threat, right? He is. Oh, I just can't imagine. Well, Malcolm, and Malcolm X was covered so much in the major news outlets and Elijah Muhammad wasn't, right? At this point, this kind of gives Elijah Muhammad the opportunity to silence Malcolm so what he ends up doing is he actually does silence him for 90 days um he forbids Malcolm to teach or to talk to press for those 90 days so this leads to some very quick changes in Malcolm's life in addition to the silencing there's information coming out about Elijah Muhammad during this time period that he has had sexual relationships with a good number of his secretaries female secretaries and I put that in quote not allowed not allowed yes not allowed and it's resulted in several children out of wedlock to be honest I think Malcolm and I I recall reading a letter that he read years ago was horrified by this um yeah because he believes he believes he believes
1: and because he believes he believes that you do all of the the things you said before, one of the things that you appreciate about him so much, which I know, you know, I can also appreciate, <laughs> man is not a hypocrite.
0: And not so even a little if, bit.
1: if this is the thing, if this is the thing, and this is what we say we're going to do, then that's what we need to do.
0: Yes. And he, I, I try to put it in his perspective. This is a person that he perceives to be almost like a god to him. And this person, this would shatter his understanding of his belief system, in a sense, right? If this person is committing, I would argue, like, forms of sexual assault, because these secretaries are quite young teenagers, and he's quite old. It would just shatter his whole kind of understanding of even himself, I think, in a at sense. The, at the very least, it's predatory. Yes, yes. I, I, exactly. So in January of 64. Malcolm meets up with Elijah Muhammad who orders him to put out the fires you've started and that's a quote about the leader's adultery right so Malcolm's talking about this Malcolm is also removed as the nation's national representative so kind of this lead speaker for the the uh, nation of Islam and as the minister of Harlem Temple number seven and this is quickly going to lead Malcolm to I could go into more detail because also uh Cassius Clay aka uh um Muhammad Ali Muhammad participates Ali. there's a great documentary that came out last year on Netflix on Ma- <laughs> There's a great documentary that came out last year on Netflix that kind of is about the relationship between Malcolm X and Muhammad Ali and a lot of it talks about this particular time period when Malcolm is kind of being forced out of the nation and i think is trying to take muhammad ali with him um, but muhammad ali chooses to stay but he is ultimately leaves the nation of islam but i can only imagine how sad and traumatizing this experience probably was after dedicating
1: it could be a real
0: legitimate crisis of identity
1: too if you think about you know how all in he was and how serious he you know he took he took his commitment and I mean, it's his, it was a whole, it's a whole belief system. It's not just a, you know, a civil rights organization or a black nationalist organization. It's, it's meant to be a religion too. So yes. that, at that, you know, takes it to another
0: level. Absolutely. During this time, he's also thinking about kind of becoming closer to other uh civil rights activists and leaders of this time period, which he was prohibited from doing as a member of the Nation of Islam. Um, there were strict guidelines on who he could kind of collaborate with. He couldn't attend events. Um, and so with this, Uh, Division from the nation, he is looking at ways that he can kind of contribute to the movement. And this, one of the ways that he says this is in April of '64, he delivers his famous election year speech, The Ballot or the Bullet. (laughs) It's a dramatic title, right? The Ballot or the Bullet. But what he's ultimately saying is that we need to be able to vote so that we can participate and we can have our voices heard, right? And, but the bullet, I think is a way of kind of linking him to his past more um, self-defense approach to the movement but he's also delivering this at a rally that is attended by other civil rights leaders who wouldn't have the same approach as him so he's kind of i think tempering some of his previous rhetoric but also trying to find ways of collaborating and seeing how he can participate in the movement that's been kind of existing outside of the nation. Also, I wonder if he's trying to find a, like, where am I going to fit now, right? He had a very specific place in the movement as the leader. uh, Most recognizable. He was the most recognizable. The most recognizable member of the Nation of Islam, right? But Mm -hmm. like you said, it was so much a part of who he was. So after the speech he does uh he travels both to Europe and to Africa and eventually he does his hajj which is a pillar of the Islamic tradition right it's a pilgrimage yeah thank you and so during this period he is converting Chica. to yes thank you he is converting to a, a kind of more traditional form of islam um he changes his name again to el haj malik el shabazz the el hajj is signifying that he has been on his pilgrimage and during this time period he's speaking about kind of like brotherhood he's seeing ways of coming together right his rhetoric during the nation of islam was more of a separist approach and now he's he's thinking about brotherhood and coming together he comes back to the U.S. at the end of that summer of 64, and he's starting to organize new, create new organizations. So he creates the Organization of Afro-American Unity, um, reflecting a growing political agenda and spends nearly, after spending nearly five months in Africa, visiting heads of states and lobbying for his un plan so he's in the same way his mother was thinking transnationally he's totally thinking transnationally during this time period so he's thinking about ways of collaborating with other people but also thinking about not just the african-american experience but the african diaspora very much like his mother Mm -hmm. 65 comes around and he is performing activism, working with different groups, including SNCC, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. But he's also being threatened. Um, there's been a lot of contention by the Nation of Islam, who consider him a traitor. And in February of 65, um, he is actually, his home is firebombed in New York with his family in the house. Just A couple days after that firebomb, on February 21st, Malcolm X is assassinated uh, while speaking to at a rally in Harlem, as I said, at the Audubon Ballroom. Three members of the Nation of Islam are later convicted, despite the fact that the assailant apprehended at the scene, insisted that his two co-defendants are innocent. So there's been a lot of recent speculation about the fact that they put the wrong people in jail. Um, In fact, I think recently some of them have been released. Um, I'm not going to go into that because there's a ton of controversy around that, and I could do a whole episode just about his assassination, um, but there's been really great documentaries and things coming out about that recently. I wanted to, I, I was, I'm going to, as I told you, I was going to tell you about his legacy, but I'm going to do that in the second half because I think it's a great place to do it. But as a final thought, I mentioned Manny Maribel's book a while back. And that book is called Malcolm X, A Life of Reinvention. And I love the title of that book so much because I think it is a it is a thesis about Malcolm X's life. Mm-hmm. He His ability to continually reinvent himself is incredible. I mean, he lived, I think only 39, he was only 39 years old uh, when he was assassinated and he lived so many different lives within that short period of time. Mm -hmm. Um, I think we can learn so much about him. And I actually really liked your point about place. I think we can learn a lot about the country and the experiences of African Americans through his experiences. Um, I know his life became quite exemplary and uh, unique later, um, as a leader, but his life leading to that was, I think, very representative of a lot of struggles that other African Americans experienced. Um, and I continue several years after uh, high school being introduced to him to be fascinated by him. So I'm so sorry. This is an extremely long episode, but thanks for letting me chat.
1: Yeah, no, it's awesome. Um, I have a
0: question for you. When his, even though his rhetoric,
1: the tone of his rhetoric changed after he left the nation and it became much more focused on creating unity and kind of collaborating across different groups did he still promote
0: armed self defense? I think he understood the power of telling people, like, you have the right to defend yourself, right? Yeah. I but think,
1: I, yeah. And I think that's because we had talked about the overgeneralization between passive and then kind of more militant. And I think I just wanted to kind of come back to highlight the ways in which he's been portrayed like kind of the Mm -hmm. stereotypes or the caricatures of him where in many cases, like in all the cases that I can think of Malcolm X and then others who didn't necessarily ascribe to a a passive approach, it was never about, you know, come on, get your arms. We're going to go on the offensive. It was always about, we have the right to protect ourselves. It was always about self-defense. So I just wanted to kind of emphasize that at the end so that people didn't get confused with what we were trying to say about generalizations and
0: mischaracterizations because that was the point perfect i i think you're exactly right about the ways that he was falsely portrayed as a way to delegitimize him and make him scary i think a lot of americans were very afraid of him and not, without a lot of reason to be, right? He was not a violent person towards people as a member of the Nation of Islam, but there was power in making him seem like a scary person and a scary figure.
1: Yeah. And again, kind of the, the propaganda purposes of that yes. photograph.
0: Yes, exactly. Exactly. Awesome. Awesome. So, Thank you. Yay. I will. Uh, I will talk about legacy in the second section. Looking forward to it. Before I get started, I want to mention that much of this analysis I'm laying out today was inspired by a great article from The New Yorker titled This American Life, The Making and Remaking of Malcolm X by David Remkin. It's a great read, so I highly recommend. All right, let's get to it. In 1965, one year after Malcolm X's assassination, the autobiography of Malcolm X was published. This text was a collaboration between Malcolm X and the prolific African-American writer and journalist, Alex Haley. He would later go on to write Roots. The two men first met in 1959, when Haley wrote pieces about the Nation of Islam for Reader's Digest and the Saturday Evening Post. Later, after interviewing Malcolm for an article in Playboy, Haley convinced Malcolm to collaborate on an as-told-to autobiography. Haley believed Malcolm's unique story would create an incredible book. In a letter he once wrote to Malcolm, he said, and I quote, I sometimes think that you don't really understand what will be the effect of this book. There has never been, or at least in our time, any other book like it, end quote. Haley was right, between 1965 and 1977, the autobiography went on to sell over six million copies worldwide, and it inspired Spike Lee's 1992 biopic. This book came to shape Malcolm X's legacy. It became the stories we tell about his life. Historical scholarship, including Manny Marable's book, Malcolm X, A Life of Reinvention, has revealed that Haley's retelling of Malcolm's life often exaggerates points and omits facts. It is clear that Haley was more concerned about writing a story than an accurate history, which has impacted our collective memory around Malcolm X's life and career. So how do we analyze the autobiography? While it is important to recognize the texts and accuracies, I think we also need to appreciate the autobiography's tremendous impact. It created a new American story. In the same way enslaved African Americans like Frederick Douglass and Harriet Jacobs used their life story to advocate for the emancipation of slavery, the autobiography of Malcolm X showed white Americans what racism in America looked like. And it made Malcolm a central figure in that story. So, from that perspective, I think we must thank Alex Haley for ensuring that we continue to tell these stories about Malcolm X. Thank you so much for listening. If you're interested in learning more about this topic, check out the recommended reading list on our Instagram account. Our handle is stories underscore we underscore tell underscore podcast.
1: Please join us next time to examine another legacy, another memory, and explore the stories we tell.